0: Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. What are you holding back that keeps you from living the disciple's lifestyle? How can you release that to God? In today's sermon, Pastor Rob explores what Jesus teaches about asking God. Let's listen now. Well, we've been
1: looking at Jesus's master class in discipleship this summer, and as we do so, we're left with a question today, and that is, how can we possibly do that? How can we possibly do that? It's the kind of question that people had to be asking in the 1880s when the Brooklyn Bridge was under construction. You see, by the 1880s, it had become very clear that a bridge connecting Brooklyn and Manhattan would be a really good thing. But even in those days, the East River was a busy shipping channel, and it meant, consequently, that a bridge across the East River would have to be tall enough for ships to pass under, which left some engineering challenges, let's say, The bridge to be built would have to have piers and a height taller than any bridge had had to that point. And to be successful, the bridge would have to have a span between the piers longer than any bridge had had to that point. And so people were asking the question, how can we possibly do that? Now, steel was used in the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge. That gave them a head start. But so too was were, were an invention called a caisson, and that is a box that was airtight and filled with pressurized air so that workers could dig into the East River underneath the footings of the Brooklyn Bridge and, and attach it to the ground beneath. Things had to be invented for the Brooklyn Bridge to be constructed. And yet, Construction of the Brooklyn Bridge took 14 years and more than two dozen people lost their lives in the construction of that bridge, including the original architect, because how could we possibly do that? Some things are actually very difficult to do. And as we think about this question, how could we possibly do that? We want to ask that too in relationship to the disciples' lifestyle that Jesus is teaching us about in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's outlining for us what it looks like to live as a disciple, as a follower of his. But as he has done so, some of the things that he's asked us to do are a bit overwhelming. In in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling us to live consistently according to the values of the kingdom of God. And then he tells us, his followers, that we are to have a righteousness that surpasses that of the religious leaders of his own day. By that, he means a heart righteousness. And he says that surpassing righteousness is supposed to come out in our relationships with one another. It's supposed to come out in our religious observances. And when we have this surpassing righteousness, it changes so many things for us. It breaks the hold that money and things have over us. It causes us to declare our our complete loyalty to God. And because of that, it means that, that we don't worry. It means instead that we seek God first, His kingdom and His righteousness. It even means that we don't judge one another. And that's just the beginning of the things that Jesus is saying to us in the Sermon on the Mount. And we have to ask the question, well, how can we possibly do that? In Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, Jesus seems to answer that question, how can we possibly do that? Because you see, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, it seems almost as if Jesus pauses in the logic of the Sermon on the Mount. And as he pauses, he seems to be addressing this question, how can we possibly live the disciples' lifestyle? And in addressing this question, he makes it clear that it is possible, that it is possible. And that's really critically important news for us today because we want to live the disciples' lifestyle. And so as Jesus addresses how we are to do that, we want to pay very careful attention to what he's saying. Now, as we look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, we, we have to ask the question Is Jesus saying, does, does persistent prayer help us to live the disciples' lifestyle? Does persisting in prayer help us to live the disciples' lifestyle? Well, it seems in verses 7 and 8 that Jesus is indeed calling us to pray persistently. In those verses, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you, seek, and you will find, knock, and it will be open to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened and so what we find here from Jesus is a threefold command and a threefold promise the threefold command begins with a command to ask jesus tells us to ask he doesn't tell us exactly what to ask for right here but there is a sense that we are asking this thing of God. Then he tells us to seek. Once again, Jesus doesn't tell us what to seek, but again, there is this sense that we are seeking something from God. And when you pair asking and seeking so closely to one another, you come away with an impression that we are to pray, that this is a command about praying. And then Jesus tells us a third command. He says, knock. And by that, he's implying that there is something that is closed to us, a gate or a door, and that on the other side of that gate or door is something that we need and want. And so we knock, we ask, we seek, we knock, a threefold command, but it's matched by a threefold promise. And in this threefold promise, Jesus tells us that everyone who asks is going to receive, and anyone who seeks is going to find, and anyone who knocks will find that the door or the gate is going to be opened to them. Ask, seek, knock. It does seem like a command to pray and to persist in that praying, and a promise that if we persist in that praying, something important is going to happen. Ask, seek, knock. It feels like Jesus is commanding us to pray and to persist in that praying. Now, repeatedly, the Bible does command us to pray and to persist in that praying. Jesus himself commands us to pray and to persist in our praying. But when Jesus commands us to persist in praying, is he promising us that he's going to give us a pony? There's a trope that every child wants a pony. And Jesus seems to be saying, if we take his teachings literally, that if we ask, we seek, we knock, and we keep on persisting in praying in this way, we're going to get whatever it is that we want. Are we going to get a pony? Is that what Jesus is saying? That if we ask and seek and knock in the right way, we're going to get a pony if that's our heart's desire. Well, of course, that's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, in the teachings on persisting in prayer, we find that that that's really not the intent at all. If we go back even to the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, Jeremiah is talking about seeking God, And, and in the name of the Lord, he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. But in the context, in the prophet Jeremiah, we know that what that means is that when you sin and run into consequences because of your sin, and recognizing the consequences, repent of that sin, and having repented, then come and seek me, then you will find my face. That's what Jeremiah the prophet is really saying here. That's not a promise that we're going to seek and get a pony. Now, Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 21, verse 22, talks about persisting in prayer. But here he says, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, by faith, Jesus doesn't mean that if if you believe really hard that I will give you a pony, then I'll give you a pony. But if you don't believe really hard, I'm not giving you a pony. That's not what he's saying at all. Faith here is a posture, a trust relationship with God, where we trust in God, we place our faith in him, and we expect that we are going to be receiving good things from God. Faith is critical to persisting in prayer. But James adds in James chapter 4, verse 3, that what we ask for even matters. James says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it, what? On your passions. You ask for a pony. And he's saying if you're asking for the wrong things that are out of God's will, things that are selfish and for you, there's no guarantee that you're going to get what it is you're asking for. So what we discover is that what we ask for, the relationship from which we ask for it, and the timing of when we ask, all of these things matter in persisting in prayer. And so what we discover is this is not a promise from Jesus, that if we persist in prayer, we're going to get a pony. Then what is it? What is it? Jesus is promising us here that when we ask, when we seek, when we knock, when we persist in our praying, then we're going to get what it is that we need to live the disciples' lifestyle. We're seeking to live the disciples' lifestyle, and Jesus promises us that when we persist in prayer, God is going to help us. So does persisting in prayer help us to live the disciples' lifestyle? Yes, it helps us to live the disciples' lifestyle, so we persist in prayer. But then we come to another question that Jesus is addressing, which is, does knowing God accurately help us live the disciples' lifestyle? Does knowing God accurately help us live the disciples' lifestyle? We find in verses 9 through 11 that Jesus is talking about knowing God accurately when he says, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, Jesus is addressing the fact here that sometimes we have wrong pictures of God. Many people have wrong pictures of God. Some of the wrong pictures that we have of God are are, are picturing God as almost like a golden retriever, someone who just comes alongside of us and is fiercely loyal to us and is always there, eager to be petted. And when we are displeased, we'll, we'll go and sulk away and hide in a corner until the golden retriever is needed again. Some people view God that way. Some people view God almost like a genie in a bottle. When they have a need, they go, they pick up the bottle, they rub the lamp, out comes the genie. They make a wish and expect that the genie is going to grant them the wish and then get right back in the bottle where the genie is safe and can be put on a shelf again. That's the way some people view God. Some people view God the way that the ancient Greeks viewed their god Zeus. They view God in terms that the Greeks viewed Zeus. Of course, he, he's an old man. And of course, he, he is king of the gods. And of course, he's powerful. I mean, he's got a thunderbolt after all. So he's powerful. But at the same time, Zeus was consumed with a desire to keep power over the gods and with his quest to chase human with women. And so he was never you know in a position to do a whole lot for human beings because he's so consumed with his own stuff. And this is the way some people View God, a distant judge who is more consumed with his own purposes than with us. And Jesus is saying there are so many wrong pictures that we have of God. And replacing those wrong pictures with right pictures of God is critical to us living the disciples' lifestyle. And Jesus helps us to begin replacing our wrong pictures of God with a right picture of God by asking us to think about earthly fathers. Now, one of the things we know about earthly fathers is that earthly fathers are are imperfect. And, And sometimes earthly fathers disappoint us. And there are times when earthly fathers can be actually downright evil. But Jesus is building on the assumption that most fathers are not that way. Most fathers, particularly when it comes to their children, have a desire to do good things for them. And so Jesus asks us to consider earthly fathers. And he says to them directly, which of you as a father, as a parent, when your son, when your child comes to you and asks you for a loaf of bread, is instead going to give that child something round and brown, but not bread, a stone, for instance? And the answer is, of course, nobody would do that. And then he goes on with a second mini parable. He says, or which of you, if your child comes to you asking for a fish to eat, will instead throw an angry rattlesnake in his lap? And again, the answer is, of course, no one would do that. Now, Jesus is not saying here that God, our Father in heaven, is like us as human parents. Instead, what he says, if you as a parent is a human parent who is fallen, small, and not always good, sometimes evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, then can you not imagine that your Father in heaven, who is none of those things, he is not fallen, he is not small, he is not evil. Instead, he is infinite, he is powerful, he is good, he is holy, and he knows all things. If you can give good gifts to your children, how much more then will not God give good things to his children who come to him? And that's the picture Jesus wants us to get of who God is. Of course, God is good and powerful and knows us. And as our heavenly father is going to give us what we need, One of the things that I have learned in life is that if I as a father am going to get up in the middle of the night every two hours with my brand new son, then God must care for me. When my oldest son was born, the doctor sent us home from the hospital with instructions that he needed to eat every two hours, which led to a really weird ritual for the first six weeks of his life. Every time he ate we would set a timer so that two hours later we would feed him again which meant in the middle of the night an alarm would go off and I would get out of bed I would go pick our son up from the crib I would change his diaper and if he wasn't awake by that point I had to find a way to wake him up to eat which sometimes meant taking a cold washcloth and putting it on his face that's really fun with a newborn just so you know And then I'd bring our son to my wife. She would feed him. I would set an alarm and go back to bed. And two hours later, the ritual would start again. Which means for six weeks, I never got more than two hours sleep at a time. And one of the things that you need to know about me is I like sleep. In all the world, it's one of the things that I am actually really good at. I can really sleep. But the flip side of being good at sleep is that I need my sleep. If I don't get enough sleep at night, I'm no good at some point. And so for six weeks, every two hours at night, I was waking up to help feed our son. When the doctor at six weeks said, you can let him sleep longer, that was one of the best days of my life. But if I, who am small, imperfect, and tend toward evil and fallen, can get up every two hours in the middle of the night for six weeks with my newborn son, then will my Father in heaven not much more care for me? Of course he will. Of course he will. And we find in getting an accurate picture of God, that there is help for living the disciple's lifestyle because we know God is good. We know God is powerful. We know God is our Father in heaven, that he knows what we need and that he wants to meet our needs. And that gives us hope because now we know that he's going to do what we need to live the disciple's lifestyle. So, does knowing God accurately help us to live the disciples' lifestyle? Yes, it does. Persisting in prayer helps us to live the disciples' lifestyle. Knowing God accurately helps us to live the disciples' lifestyle. But it raises another question, and that is, does trusting God completely help us live the disciples' lifestyle? Does trusting God completely help us live the disciples' lifestyle? You see, Jesus has been laying down a set of expectations attached to the disciples' lifestyle. He's been telling us all about the disciples' lifestyle. And at the same time, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been filling in for us an accurate and a robust picture of who God, our Heavenly Father, is. And he is laying down the implication that if we will just trust our Father in heaven, then we have the ability to live out this disciples' lifestyle that he's teaching us. And so that helps us to recalibrate what he means by asking and seeking and knocking. When Jesus says that we are to ask, what he means is that we are to ask for what we need in order to live the disciples' lifestyle. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount has already helped us to understand what asking as a disciple looks like. He did so in his model prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer, where he outlined for us what it is that we are to ask God for. He told us to go in front of our Heavenly Father every day and ask for our daily bread for the things that we need for that day. He told us to go in front of our heavenly father and pray for forgiveness and to ask for deliverance from temptation and from evil. These are the things that we need every day if we are to live the disciples' lifestyle. So we ask in prayer for the things that we need to live this disciples' lifestyle. When Jesus tells us to seek, what he means is to seek what we need for this disciple lifestyle. Jesus talked about seeking in another place in the Sermon on the Mount. In his teaching on worry and anxiety, Jesus told us to seek instead something else. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus told us to seek instead first primarily as our top loyalty in life, the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. Now, the kingdom of God is God's purposes at work in the world, and God's righteousness is God's purpose at work in me. And so Jesus is telling us to seek first primarily every day the the purposes of God at work in the world and the purposes of God at work in us. If we're doing that, that's living the disciple's lifestyle. Seek the disciple's lifestyle. And when Jesus tells us that we are to knock, and that there is, by, by virtue of knocking, some, some door or, or some gate. He's telling us that when that door or gate opens, that opening that door or gate is somehow going to give us what we need to live the disciples' lifestyle. And in the passage that we're going to look at next week, Jesus is going to once again talk about a gate. It's a narrow gate that leads to a narrow way, and the narrow way is the way to life. We go through that gate, we find ourselves walking the way to life, which is the way to forgiveness in Christ, the way to new life through adoption as sons and daughters of God, the way to eternal life. And so if we knock, that gate opens, and we walk that way, that is the disciples' lifestyle. We knock, and we find ourselves living the disciples' lifestyle. So Jesus has set out expectations for us. He has told us what it looks like to live the disciples' lifestyle. But at the same time, Jesus has added to those expectations an invitation, come to me for everything that you need to live this disciples' lifestyle. So when we trust God completely, we find ourselves getting everything we need to live this disciple's lifestyle, which leads us to a conclusion today, and that is that we ask, seek, and knock for everything we need to live the disciple's lifestyle. You see, living the disciple's lifestyle is so worth it. From one end to the other, God's story reminds us of how living the disciples' lifestyle is worth it. Because it reminds us that in the beginning we were created by God and that we were created by him because he loves us. And when we live the disciples' lifestyle, we remember that when we sinned and disobeyed God, when we walked away from him, God did not walk away from us. And that's life-changing news. And when we live the disciples' lifestyle, we know and we remember the fact that We have been forgiven in Jesus Christ if we repent and being forgiven in Jesus Christ, we're cleansed and made new again and we're adopted as sons and daughters of God. And when we are followers of Jesus living the disciples lifestyle, we recognize that we're being filled with God's Holy Spirit, which means that we're being made holy. We are being filled with the gifts that God is making available to us to serve him and we are given a purpose in life. And when we're living the disciple's lifestyle, we remember that God wins in the end. No matter how difficult life is for us now, we know that God wins in the end. And when God wins in the end, we live forever with Him. All that comes with living the disciple's lifestyle. The disciple's lifestyle is so worth it. But the disciple's lifestyle is not always easy. Jonathan Reed's life points that out. Jonathan Reed and his wife, in their early years of their marriage, struggled with infertility and the pain that came from that. Eventually, they made a decision to build a family instead through foster parenting and adoption. Once they began foster parenting, though, a lot of things changed for them mentally. They began to see foster children And their families, not as statistics anymore, but they began to see them through God's eyes as as God sees them, as individuals made in God's image. And they began to see foster parenting and adoption as a gospel issue, meaning that it incarnated God's heart for the orphan to foster and adopt children And so through the years of their marriage so far, they've fostered more than 30 children and teenagers and adopted four of them into their family totally changed things for them. In the process of realizing that this is a gospel issue, they realized that there are not enough gospel responses to this critical issue in our society. And so they began to build together an, an agency that would help churches and Christians come together to serve foster children and foster families and the foster system. They founded an agency called Fostering Hope. And now Jonathan Reed is the executive director of Fostering Hope. And his life story reminds us that the disciples' lifestyle sometimes changes our expectations for how life is going to go. Living the disciples' lifestyle is not always the easiest or most comfortable pathway through life. It can disrupt everything for us. At the same time, living the disciples' lifestyle is not only the right decision, but it's the best decision. The disciple's lifestyle is not always easy, but it's worth it. And so Jesus tells us here to keep on persisting in seeking to live the disciple's lifestyle. The urgency of Jesus' command can be lost on us in English translation because when we read Jesus' commands and promises here, it sounds as if Jesus is saying to us, ask once, seek now, knock politely one time, and then back away from the door before the ring camera starts taking pictures of you. But what Jesus is really saying to us here, if you dig just a bit underneath the English to the original language, is he is saying to us, ask and keep on asking, never stop asking, start asking and keep asking. Seek continuously as a lifestyle. Knock and keep knocking because as you knock that gate, that door is going to open to you. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking for the disciples' lifestyle. Which leads to a question for us today. What holds us back? What keeps us from seeking that disciple's lifestyle from God. Is there some doubt that you're struggling to release that keeps you from asking God for what you need to live the disciple's lifestyle? Perhaps you have a a picture of God that, that he is not good and that he is not going to give you what you need and that he doesn't even know what you need. Is there some doubt that holds you back with God? Is there something that you're struggling to ask God for? Perhaps because you asked God for something one time and you didn't get it as you wanted it, when you wanted it, and now you're afraid to ask again because you don't want your expectations to be shattered again. Is there some commitment that you struggle to make? Because you know what it is that the disciple's lifestyle requires of you, but you're not ready to give that thing over to God? Is there some commitment that you're struggling to make? God says to us very clearly in Matthew chapter seven, leave it with me, leave it with me. And in a moment like this, we're willing to leave it with him for a moment but having left it with him in the heat of a moment what tends to happen is we think about it again later and we want to pick that thing back up that we left with God we want to own it ourselves hold on to it ourselves control it ourselves for a little while longer What Jesus is saying to us here is, is don't, don't pick that thing back up. Don't try to hold on to it. Don't keep it to yourself any longer. Lay it down before God and leave it with him. Set it in concrete, set it in concrete so that having left it with God, you will not pick that thing back up from God again and try to take it away. Set it in concrete as a way to say that it is before God now and that you are always asking, you are always seeking, you are always and everywhere knocking for what you need to live the disciples' lifestyle. Set it in concrete. Are we prepared to do that today? Are we prepared to ask, to seek, and to not. God will give us what we need to live
0: the disciples' lifestyle. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon Podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.